Hello, in this week's show, ever-deepening concerns about life in Afghanistan, where the national rights body is no more, while in Mexico more than 100,000 people are now officially disappeared. Stay with us too, if you dare, for a climate update from UN meteorologists, no spoiler alert necessary, and also for an inspiring interview with Cameroon women's land rights activist Cecile Nenjibet, who's just won the Wangari Matai Forest Champions Award. And not forgetting closing comments from Solange Behatege Cortez. That's all coming up in this week's UN Catch Up Dateline Geneva with me, Daniel Johnson. First, the news. The Taliban authorities' decision to dissolve Afghanistan's independent rights body will be a deeply retrograde step for the country's people, UN Rights Chief Michelle Bachelet said on Thursday. In a statement, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights said that the Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission had performed extraordinary work in extremely difficult conditions over many years. The Afghanistan organization had highlighted the human rights of all Afghans, including victims on all sides of the conflict, Ms Bachelet insisted noting that it had not been able to operate in the country since August 2021. Ms Bachelet said that during her visit to Kabul in March, she'd urged the Taliban to re-establish an independent rights mechanism that could receive complaints from the public and also raise concerns at an official level. Records in four out of seven key climate indicators were broken last year, UN scientists said this week. The alert from the World Meteorological Organization, WMO, came as the UN Secretary-General renewed his call to governments everywhere to end their reliance on fossil fuels before we incinerate our only home, he said. According to the WMO's flagship State of the Global Climate report, out Wednesday, records were set last year in greenhouse gas concentrations, sea level rise, ocean heat and ocean acidification. And the fact that last year was not the warmest on record is likely only because there was a La Nina event at the start and end of the year. This provided a temporary cooling effect and left average global temperatures around 1.1 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial level. Regardless of this temporary reprieve, scientists are in no doubt that the long-term trend is for rising temperatures. The impact can already be seen on coral bleaching and other less visible areas, said WMO's Omar Badur. The problem is that not only the climate system is changing, but also the ecosystems associated with the air system are also completely changing. For instance, the biological life in the ocean species are being extinct because of this warming of the ocean and acidification. The news that more than 100,000 people in Mexico are now officially registered as disappeared is a tragedy, UN Rights Chief Michelle Bachelet said on Tuesday in a call for action to tackle this long-standing scourge. A national database has listed all those who've been reported missing in the country since 1964, and the tally continues to climb amid ongoing drug gang violence and the lack of effective investigations to tackle the crimes. To date, only 35 of the disappearances recorded since 1964 have led to the conviction of the perpetrators, which is a staggering rate of impunity, according to the High Commissioner. Here's UN Rights Office spokesperson Liz Throssell speaking in Geneva. The crime of enforced disappearances is, is, is one of the, the worst things, precisely because for the families, they never get closure unless, sadly, a, a body is found. What is really important in, in what has happened is, is, of course, that the steps that have been taken by the Mexican authorities, but as I, as I said, that the High Commissioner is at pains to stress how important uh, the role of families, of the victims, has been in order to keep this issue at the forefront. 
The headlines there, now from Mexico to Cameroon, where I've been catching up with Cecile Njebet. She's just won the 2022 Wangari Matai Forest Champions Award, a collaborative partnership on forest initiative that's chaired by the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO. As we'll hear now, Cecile's work involves pushing for women's land rights in the face of opposition from traditional landowners and helping communities to restore mangroves and other potentially valuable land. She is the co-founder of the African Women's Network for Community Management of Forests, which now has 20 member countries across the continent. It's not an easy task, but there is real momentum for change, which I'm convinced is thanks to Cecile's energy and her huge smile, which you can almost hear bursting through the sound barrier now. Thank you. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was really like, wow. I say, wow. How come? Wow, it's not possible. Wow, oh my God. I was so happy. I was so motivated. I was so encouraged. You know, it was like, uh, yeah, all that. (laughs) I'm very glad to hear it. And you had to travel all the way to the Republic of Korea to accept your award, which was the 2022 Wangari Mate Forest Champions Award, which was given to you by the Collaborative Partnership on Forests, chaired by the UN Food and Agriculture Organization. So it is a major international environmental prize. Maybe you could now tell our listeners a bit about your work. You are trying, Cecile, to reverse obstacles to equality in forest management and land rights in Cameroon. Please, can you give me some examples of your work? Yeah. The African Women's Network for Community Management of Forests is uh, engaged and very committed to promoting, first of all, the women's rights to land and forest, and then also committed to contributing to the Green Africa and to the mitigation of climate change. So we have a few initiatives here and there where we are trying to push for policy reforms that will give the real place to rural women in this ownership process on land and forest. That is at the level of the policy. At the ground level, with communities, they are engaged in restoration of the environment. We have initiative on restoration of mangroves, on forests, and we have a very good initiative on agroforestry, where you have women planting trees together with crops. And this is one of the schemes that is really going very well because women, they have their crops, they sell, they eat, and they leave the trees in the field. And they can do that twice before the tree get very tall and they cannot do it anymore. And we have a great component on capacity building and on leadership training to try to influence what is going on at their level. And we also have technical training to help them improve their production while associating trees and crops. This is roughly what we are doing, but we have a great component on policy advocacy at national and regional and global level. Why did you start to do this work? Were you personally aware of cases where women can't own their own land, they can't inherit it if their husband dies, or even plant trees on land that's really in need of some care and attention. Thank you. What I will be sharing with you for Cameroon is valid for many other countries where Rifakov is operating. Women in Africa, in our tradition, in our custom, we don't have ownership right to land. 
and to forest. We don't have that. It's the customary laws, it's a customary process because we are in a patriarchal system where the decision and the control of the resources are in men's hands. So what we have been experiencing, why have we decided to work on this field? First of all, I can share with you that I grew up in the rural area with my mother and my sisters, and I saw the challenges they were going through to have us gain a living, to feed their families, to take care of their children, to send them to school. So all these have motivated me to go for this type of what we call rural development-related activities, studies. So I started by agronomy. I'm an agronomist by profession. Then I went to social forestry because I knew very well the relation between communities, people, and forest. And for women, I remember my mother was taking me to the forest to grab some non-timber forest product. And she will come back in the evening and cook, and that's what we're going to eat sometime for two days. So these are things that I know from my very, very early childhood. And this really committed me, let's say motivated me to work on that field. And when I started working, I also had, a um, few years ago, I had the opportunity to meet an American NGO who were talking about tenure rights. I worked with that uh, American NGO on tenure rights, and my objective was to improve women in Africa tenure rights. So I started, I had the opportunity to be also trained and I started now influencing the policies, forest policy reform. I was there with my women, uh, with Refakov everywhere. We were even pushing for reforms because we realized that without the reform that will give the place to the women, it will be very difficult. Now, come on back to planting trees. We started working with rural women in the villages and we started encouraging them. But the problem is that when you don't own a piece of land, you cannot plant trees on that because it's not your land. So we started doing some advocacy work with the government to at least allocate degraded land for women to women that will be valorizing those degraded land. So we have some land that were attributed to some rural women and they started then putting trees in that and some vegetable and trees. Can I ask you, Cecile, you've mentioned that you managed to convince local authorities to give women some land, even if it wasn't great quality land. But did you have any real obstacles, areas and villages where you just couldn't get through because the control on the land was so tight? I mean, how did you avoid conflict? Yeah, that is a good one. We, we, we had that situation where it was not possible at all. We couldn't make it. And we even have situation where they gave the land, but when the new executive came in, they took the land back from the women. So we are pushing for collective land rights for the women with documentation. If I have support, we can go up to the title, the titling of those land. But if not, at least we have the first step of documentation that will be the first security for the women. The effervescent Cecile Engebet there on her work pushing for women's land rights recognition in Cameroon and beyond. For more details about her work, check out her organization's website, the African Women's Network for Community Management of Forests. 
Now, as ever, it's time to turn the mic over to regular guest Solange Behategui-Cortez for some closing thoughts, which this week give a nod to the famous Thomas Hardy novel, Far From the Maddening Crowd. Hi, Sol. Hola, Daniel. Gracias por la entrevista. What would we do without trees? Cecile and Jebet left me thinking about all these women who, just because they are women, have no right to plant trees. And what would we do without trees? We would be enabled to sit under the shade of a tree and listen to the stories coming out of its branches. Forests would not exist. Without trees, the great Uruguayan writer Eduardo Galeano would not have written the following. The tree of life grows upside down, the trunk and branches downwards the roots upwards, the crown sinks into the earth, the roots look up to the sky. It does not offer its fruits, but its origin. It does not hide underground what is most dear to it, what is most vulnerable, but risks it out in the open. It gives its roots in living flesh to the winds of the world. Daniel a woman is a tree of life. I recently read a Thomas Hardy's novel, Far From the Madding Crowd, which is set in rural southwest England in about 1870. It is the story of Bathsheba, an orphaned, independent, feminist woman who inherits a farm. When she marries Sergeant Troy, she loses her autonomy and her husband takes the control of the farm, exactly as Cecile said it happens in Africa. Men control the resources. Violence against women knows no borders. Gender inequalities in land rights are enormous at all levels. According to the UN agency FAO, not only do women have less access to land than men, but they also often only have so-called secondary land rights. They hold these rights through the men in their families. As a result, women may lose their land rights in case of divorce, widowhood, or migration of their husbands. They live imprisoned by laws, tradition, and poverty. And you know, it is often easier to change laws than culture, customary laws, and tradition. Daniel, what would we do without trees? What would Africa be without women? Thank you, Sol. From our viewpoint, it's that simple, isn't it? Outside Africa, let me add finally that in the UK, until around 100 years ago, women had few land rights either. Fortunately, things got a lot better when the Great Property Act of 1925 was introduced. So progress is possible. <laughs> On that historical note, which I think and hope is relevant to the discussion, it's time for me to say that we're out of time. We'll be back next week. So until then, let me say a huge thank you to you for listening to the show. Bye-bye for now. Mm-hmm.